Okay, so as as you said, I've spent my life, uh, my sort of research life, studying human reasoning, and in particular studying the neural basis of human reasoning. And uh, what uh, so over the the past five ten years, it sort of dawned upon me that some of the really interesting human behaviors, real world human behaviors. Um, seem beyond the uh, beyond the explanatory apparatus that I and my colleagues use. Um, so, so let me give you some examples of the behaviors that I find that I cannot explain with this standard reasoning machinery that we all use. Uh, I first noticed it when my daughter was a teenager. And the um, as says her behavior, I mean, she was a perfectly normal uh, uh, teenager. But uh, using the machinery of reasoning and logic that I thought explained human behavior, there was very little of her behavior that I could explain. Uh, another example, a more recent example, is I spent a little bit of time in the winters in Florida. And my neighbors here are all ardent uh, mega Trump supporters. They all believe in American exceptionalism, yet, they deny the science of climate change and vaccination that emerges from exceptional American institutions. Uh, my ultra-liberal friends, they deny the science of gender or indeed argue that all or much of science is social construction. Uh, a personal example, uh, eating, uh, you know, I, I'm overweight. Uh, I suffer from the typical consequences of uh, being overweight, yet I routinely will eat extra slices of pizza and chocolate cake, despite 
knowing that they are not um, uh, good for my health. So these types of examples, these are all sort of real world examples. If we rely just on the machinery of reasoning and logic of rationality, then I don't think we can find a satisfactory explanation for them because the machinery of reasoning really only allows you a few degrees of freedom. So essentially, if you think the only way to explain human behavior is in terms of rationality and the behavior that you're observing is not fully rational, you have two choices. One is you can say, aha, the individual has some uh, a false belief. And if you correct the belief, then the behavior will be rational. Or you can say that the individual, the belief is not false, but they are there's something wrong with the reasoning machinery, with their ability to determine coherence relationships. And so those are sort of the two things that you can uh, appeal to. And in my sort of experience, I don't think they come anywhere near explaining the types of examples that uh, that have impressed me over the past five, 10 years. So for me, the way to respond to this was to step back and ask what is reason all that is driving human behavior or are there other factors? And uh, when you step back, you know, you, and just appeal to your common sense, then, you know, we do have another theory of human behavior that's not simply consists of rationality. The, uh, you know, in the U European Western intellectual tradition, um, very tightly, sort of closely tied to Christianity, we have this idea of, of yes, we are reasoning creatures, but we also have these, uh, what was, what has traditionally been called animal passions, and that these also affect our behavior. And so in some sense, this is what I'm sort of stepping back and embracing and trying to give a, um, a uh, an account of this whole system, reason and animal passions, that is consistent with what we've learned uh, in biology, psychology, ethology uh, over the past hundred years. And this is the idea that, yes, we are reasoning animals, but our reasoning system is tethered to these evolutionary older systems that we share with the, the rest of creation. Fair and enough. Just, yeah. Okay, so um, I guess my question is, is, is as follows. It seems, especially now with everything we see on, on TV, um, with the neighbors that you have mentioned that are very pro-Trump, those people who are avoiding vaccinations or refusing to wear masks, um, that'll, and, you know, a lot of those people will go ahead and give reasons and, and when they speak, they make them almost seem sound. Mm -hmm. But then when you get to, to chatting to them, you realize what the reasons are actually hidden feelings. Um, sometimes it's fear of change. Sometimes it's inadequacy. Sometimes it's, it's just fear that somebody is going to take over their lives. Um, so there seems to be no perfect reason in the cognitive sense, and there may never be a perfect agreement among people on a lot of consequential issues, including the issue of global warming. Do you think um, it, that anything can be done, or what can be done um, to address the inability of people to make the best of things from um, a reason perspective? Right. So the um, 
uh, so you mentioned feelings. Yes. And again, as a cognitive neuroscientist who studies reasoning, I've never sort of thought much about feelings or worried much about feelings. They've never sort of come into um, play into the explanatory apparatus that I have sort of developed over the past uh, year, few years. However, in rethinking the issue and in writing this book, it occurred to me that feelings, and by feelings, I don't mean emotions. Uh, I, I mean sort of sensory feelings, the feeling of the sun, the sunshine on your face, the feeling that, you know, uh, pain in your left knee, uh, also emotions, but the full range of feelings that the um, they are a uh, extremely neglected part of psychology and neuroscience. Uh, and there are some good reasons why this should be the case. But I think they are what is missing essentially in our um, uh, models of uh, human behavior. So the, the way I cognitive models, sorry, the purely cognitive models, correct? Right. So, uh, well, so our models of behavior are essentially models of reasoning. Yeah. There and yeah. so a, a model of reasoning essentially you can specify in terms of a desire, beliefs, and a principle of coherence, rationality. That's it. That's what you've got to work with. And there is no room in there uh, for feelings. The uh, because you're just dealing with uh, information or propositions or propositional content. But what I sort of it occurred to me when I was sort of reading, doing some of the reading for this book and going back and reading some of sort of the giants in the literature over the past hundred years, people like um, uh, Conrad Lorenz, people, uh, you know, some of the great behaviors and so forth. What did occur to me is that they all struggled with uh, developing models of the behaviors that they were interested in until they came up with this, uh, the, the, the sort of the incorporated feelings into the models. And this is particularly uh, stands out, particularly in the case of Lorenz. Uh, he had this uh, chain arc, you know, this reflex uh, chain uh, model of instincts which just wasn't doing it. There was something missing. There was something missing. And, he, and then he got this idea from Wallace Craig uh, about the feelings that the animal wants to do this, engage in this behavior, is seeking to engage in this behavior because it results in a certain relief. It results in a certain pleasurable feeling. And uh, once he had that sort of insight, then he was able to go ahead and develop uh, his model of instinctive behavior. Similarly with the uh, behaviorists, they, uh, I mean, they never, of course, owned up to the idea of feelings. They just had a, um, uh, I mean, I, what I call a sort of a question-begging definition of um, reinforcement. But um, underlying it, the only way you can really make sense of it is in terms of feeling. The, the animal will work or, you know, for a certain uh, reward because they find it pleasurable. The animal has to be able to distinguish between positive and negative, right? Pleasure and displeasure. The animal has to prefer one over the other. This is what makes the apparatus of uh, operational, you know, operant conditioning work. Uh, now, in the same, I've argued for reasoning. That is that um, 
the uh, reason is about logic, but ultimately, logic when you, we we break it down into the uh, sort of b basic intuitions is also about the feeling of rightness and the feeling of wrongness right. and the uh, and let me give you a simple example suppose i say to you george is taller than mary mary is taller than michael george is uh, taller than michael okay george mary mary michael george michael okay Yes. And suppose uh, you uh, refuse to accept that. Okay. Okay. Then what do I do? How do I prove it to you? I can't. I mean, it's, it's, a, basic, right, it's a basic intuitive notion. I and everyone with normal cognitive capacity will accept it. So this is what I mean when I say that even reasoning logic, when it's sort of in terms of the basic uh, uh, intuitions, the basic notions of logic and reasoning are about feelings, feeling of rightness, feeling of wrongness. From these, we can build up very complex structures and we accept them uh, as valid or invalid because they follow certain rules, but ultimately we can break them down into these basic notions. So in this sense, uh, I argue that feelings are all, that reasoning is also about feelings. And then this allows us to have a, 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 a sort of a, a model that has much uh, is much richer in terms of the underlying machinery than just reasoning, right? Than just beliefs and desires, uh, and um, uh, coherence. So we can have reasoning minds, associative minds, instinctive minds, uh, autonomic minds, all sort of working together here, and they communicate because they have this uh, common. Uh, current through this common currency of feelings of, in terms of valence, arousal, temporal duration. And uh, once you have a model like this, then you can, yes, you have a reasoning mind, but uh, there may also be some instinctive uh, aspects to that behavior. And uh, they can modulate the reasoning, um, sort of the output of the reasoning mind. They may not be able to override it, or they may, in some cases, they may override it, but they can uh, interact with it. Similarly, the reasoning mind can interact or modulate uh, the output of the associative mind or the instinctive mind. And I think if you approach some of these behaviors, whether it be the behavior of uh, the, um, uh, you know, the vaccine or, uh, denial or behavior of uh, teenage daughters or uh, um, MAGA neighbors, I think this type of model gives you much uh, more leverage, much richer machinery to explain the behavior rather than being confined to either false beliefs or faulty reasoning. Right. And um, you actually bring up a very good example in your book, speaking about feelings that could encompass a, a wide variety uh, of things, not just emotions. Mm -hmm. But uh, you you bring up uh, some anecdotal evidence from um, the trips to the grocery store with your wife mm -hmm. when you would get irrationally irate with her because you were hungry and she was the one who figured it out and then started carrying snacks in her purse. So you so you would have a much more pleasant time together shopping for groceries. If that's, right. Uh, I, yeah. Yes. So now in this example, the. Um, it, it depends how you do describe it. So if you want to describe this as rational behavior, then if I'm getting uh, irate with her, if suppose it was a reason, 
suppose I didn't want to go shopping at that time. And she insisted right. and I reluctantly agreed. And uh, and so then I become irate. Uh, then there's a rational explanation for that. OK, because she's making me do something I don't want to do and it's upsetting me. However, the way I tell the story and the way it actually happened is I would agree because we have to go shopping. You know, everyone's got to uh, go to the grocery store. I would That's agree, true. but then it would be around five o'clock after, you know, when I come back from class um, and uh, we would walk to the store and uh, within half an hour or something, I, I guess I, I never noticed that she noticed it. I was getting a little bit of irate and um, and ultimately the reason turned out to be low blood sugar level. I was just hungry. And the now that's just an anecdotal story, but there is actual real data to support this. It was a very famous study that was done um, on parole judges making decisions about uh, parole of uh, inmates. And what the study looked at is uh, the positive and negative decisions throughout the day. And what they found is that uh, just after a meal, after a lunch break, a, a food break, um, the, um, the positive decisions were on the order, I don't remember the exact number, but I'm thinking on the order of seven, 60, 70 percent. Okay, I may mm -hmm. have the number a little, bit, a little bit wrong, but on that order of 60-70%. However, prior to a food break, they dropped to close to 0%. And how do you explain that? Right? The, 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 uh, this has, in some sense, it has no impact on, um, you know, the, the way you're, these judges are to be making these decisions. This is a, you know, this is a job for the reasoning mind. What are the reasons that they should be paroled early? What is the positive? What are the negatives? Will society be impacted? Um, have they, you know, shown remorse for their behavior, uh, past behavior, and so forth? But uh, no, it was the, the low blood sugar level is actually because it's all one system. Uh, was and so here it was a case of the autonomic mind through these feelings of hunger pangs, which is very negative valence. It was impacting the um, uh, the output of the, the the reasoning mind. So, for example, they may be you may be evaluating a case which is maybe neutral, you know, to a little bit positive, a little bit more neutral. But if uh, you are hungry and you got these hunger pangs, and you're you know, in a, that sort of uh, pushes back against the neutral positive into negative territory. And they're saying no. Whereas in the same case, if it comes up when they have had a good meal, they're feeling good, and you know that might even push a little, you know, someone onto the negative or a neutral over to the positive side. So this is the idea of a sort of yeah. a blended response. That yes, we do have a reasoning mind, but we are more than reasoning minds in terms of our overall biology and how. Uh, um, and how these various systems affect our behavior. So what would you suggest? Because, you know, aside, it seems like keeping everybody well fed, what can we do um, to get people to agree on things and to have a meeting of the mind? Because even now, uh, for example, with vaccinations, um, there's just a lot of people picking up that information online. 
um, their arguments and they're not necessarily following what, for example, the WHO is saying. They will follow what the celebrities are saying or yes. their friends or whatever the case may be. What would you suggest can be done about it? Or is it yeah. just something that we have to wait out? Well, no, I, I think the first thing is to have an appropriate model. So, as, as, uh, I mean, so far as we're sort of hung up on just a reasoning model that is, you know, reason is necessary and sufficient to explain human behavior, then I think we're not going to make uh, progress on this. Uh, because then we can only f uh, false beliefs or they don't know how to reason, right? Those are the only two things we've got going for us. However, mm -hmm. in the case, let's take the vaccination case, um, particularly in America and to some extent uh, in, uh, uh, in Canada, the um, what I think is going on here is um, uh, the instinctive mind is kicking in, and in particular, the instinct of in-group, out-group formation. And I call this an instinct. I mean, many soci psychologists and sociolo sociologists will talk about this, in-group, out-group, but they regard it more as a social construct. And as long, if it's a social construct, then it's still part of the reasoning mind, and then you should be able to change it by changing beliefs. I think it's an actual instinct in the sense that uh, uh, Lorenz, Conrad Lorenz used that term. Um, and that means that um, it has a very different characterization, very different mechanisms, very different relationship between the triggering stimuli and the response, okay? And so then we need to sort of, um, uh, and so what's going on here is that many of these individuals, they're finding greater pleasure in belonging to the, uh, the, this, the group, the, associating with their group and hating on the other group than they are in the, um, any pleasure that, 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 that's associated with uh, coming to a rational decision. So and, basically, they just want to belong more than even preserving their own self-interest. Well, see, the the uh, the, the um, uh, they they are um, uh, they are currently maybe getting greater pleasure out mm -hmm. of uh, uh, the belonging because notice the um, uh, the in terms of preserving self-interest, if there is no immediate danger, then there there is no. Uh, negative feelings associated with it. Now, once they're uh, once they are infected and lying in an ICU, fighting for their life, then they make story. a very different decision, right? Because yes, then they ask the doctors, "Please give us the vaccine," but it's too late. So th this is what I mean in terms of the um, uh, sort of the sensory feelings. So. On such a model, if we so here we've got in this case I've uh, implicated reason, but also instincts, and in particular the instinct of in-group out-group formation here. And if on such a model, if this is correct, then there are sort of three types of things that you can do to try to minimize this. So the first okay. solution, I think, is to get the vaccine hesitant to expand their in-groups to include scientists, vaccine scientists in particular. Then if the scientists are part of the in-group, if they've expanded their in-group to include scientists, then the pleasure shows it with consummating the sort of the um, appetitive state of the instinct, 
will push in the same direction as reason. And then that there is sort of uh, the problem sort of resolves itself and reason and instincts are pushing in the same direction. But this is a non sort of trivial um, uh, proposal to get them to include scientists. For example, scientists may belong to governments or big pharma outgroups, uh, you know, and so they may totally refuse to incorporate them into the in-group. But we can certainly uh, you know, using the reasoning mind, take some steps in this direction. A second step is if we could get the vaccine hesitant, I think, to feel or experience the suffering and terror of being seriously sick and dying with COVID, hopefully vicariously, then the terror of death will override any pleasure derived from consummating in-group, out-group instinct and change behavior. Now, this is not, un what I'm thinking of here is not unlike uh, uh, how we got people to stop smoking. Right? One of the things that I think was most effective, you can certainly tell people that they will get cancer, but that was not having any impact. The thing that was the most effective, I think, and the thing that the cigarette companies, the tobacco companies fought most vociferously was the package the pictures on the package of people dying of cancer, right? Mm -hmm. of infected lungs. And then you sort of get this jolt, you sort of see and feel, and that might sort of uh, jolt you out of that. And the third, I think, step mm -hmm. is uh, to offer sufficient punishment or reward, or reward to tip the balance away from the pleasure associated with in-group membership towards the pleasure associated with the coherent choice. So, for example, you know, if you need a vaccine passport to get uh, onto a flight or get into a restaurant, then you will find many of these people, well, they really want to go to the restaurant or really fly and they'll just get the vaccine. Or you could offer rewards, offer $100, $200, whatever it takes for them to, so that's pleasurable uh, immediately. And uh, that will get them, I think, over it. But none of these are reasoned responses. You're not reasoning with them. I think reasoning That's with right. them is um, uh, has a very minimal impact. You know what? It's right now that you speak about it. That um, brings my mind to several of people that I know that didn't want to get the vaccine. They had a line of reasoning uh, going, and then once they found out that they can't go to a restaurant without a vaccine passport, the reasoning changed to, well, it's just easier to get the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's that makes sense. So, um, the last question I would like to ask you is, um, did your research direction change at all as a result of uh, this book? What are you currently working on, and what are you thinking about uh, writing in the future? Okay. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, there are sort of two things that... Um, I am uh, sort of working on here. And both sort of come out of the book. The first idea is this, um, I, you know, it's um, uh, socially, it's very problematic to uh, incorporate non-reasoning systems into human behavior. It's problematic because reason is to, you know, if we're, um, that when our behaviors are harmful to others, we have to be held responsible, morally, criminally, you know, legally, or whatever. And it turns out that it is hard to make a case for responsibility in the absence of reason. 
And so there is a story to be told, I think, that um, uh, you, so I think one has to sort of tell the story of the tethered mind in such a way that individuals are still responsible uh, for their behavior, for you know, uh, for uh, bad behavior, behavior that harms others. Mm -hmm. And so this is one thing that I'm working on at the moment, uh, sort of reason, responsibility, and the uh, tethered mind. So I think this is sort of a fascinating issue. Um, and it explains why, so for example, when it comes to something like weight loss, we have no problem in implicating our you know, biological factors in weight, weight loss. However, when it comes to something like uh, sexual uh, assault, then people are outraged if uh, we um, uh, implicate any biological factors. The behaviors, the, and the main difference in the two behaviors is uh, harm. In the weight loss, you can argue the harm is just to the individual. Uh, that's not quite correct, but for the moment, I mean, it'll do for, for now. But in the case of sexual assault, the harm is clearly to someone else. And if you harm someone else, you need to be held responsible uh, for, for, for your actions. And so I think it is possible to tell the story of a tethered mind and retain the notion of responsibility. So this is something that I'm thinking about and working on. Um, and the other question issue is the issue of um, not only the, you know, when I was talking to my neighbors, when I'm talking, doing the research for the book, talking to individuals, I noticed two things. One is not only is it the case that um, people entertain these false beliefs. But what really surprised me is the tenacity, the certainty with which they hold them. And the less yeah. they know, the more certain they are. You know, the less they know about that topic, the more certain they are. Yes, we all encountered those people. That's yes, and I'd never noticed this before. And so this is something that requires an explanation. I touch upon it in the book, but uh, I almost got sidetracked by it, but I realized, no, this is a separate book. And um, uh, so I, I have a tentative title, Empowered Ignorance, and I'm mm -hmm. sort of working on that. And I think there is, again, there's no simple answer to it. There are four or five different dimensions. I think that, um, uh, that I'm trying to weave into uh, an explanation for this phenomenon. So those are the two sort of things that uh, uh, I'm working on. And again, they're very different uh, from what I have done you know, in the previous 20 years. Um, uh, and again, they're different because I sort of all of a sudden changed my focus from this, you know, the little laboratory tasks uh, we all do as scientists to observing people in the real world and saying, this is what needs to be explained. Because it's different. Yeah, they are. They're capturing certain aspects of the phenomenon, and we can't study the phenomenon as a whole because it's too complex. So we study these little simple aspects, but we often forget. We sort of become consumed by those, and we think that's all there is to explain. And we often forget the larger picture. And in forgetting the larger picture, we will often get sidetracked because the. Uh, uh, the direction that we've gone into in explaining our little phenomenon, for example, coherence relations is what reasoning uh, people stu you know, study, 
we, you know, the we may have gone in a direction that is totally inconsistent with the larger phenomenon. So stepping back and looking at the larger phenomenon, I think, um, is important, not just, you know, for all scientists. Uh, um, and so this is sort of what what I see myself doing now after 20 years of working, uh, you know, in terms of the the um, the minutiae of uh, logical uh, relations, this, uh, sort of stepping back at the larger picture. Well, that sounds great. Um, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to speak to me on the Trauma and Mental Health Report. As mentioned, Professor Gould's book will be available for purchase as of February 8th, and the link where you can purchase the book will be posted below. You have reached the end of this episode of our podcast. We invite you to connect with the Trauma and Mental Health Report on our website, trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Trauma Report, on Instagram at trauma.mentalhealth.report, and on LinkedIn as the Trauma and Mental Health Report. Please subscribe and join us for the next episode of our podcast.